Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We're going to uh, delve deep into Medtronic's uh, renal renovation program. Of course, they've received FDA approval last year. And uh, I'm going to, I, I got a chance to speak with Jason Weidman, who's head of coronary and renal renovation at Medtronic. We talked uh, in January, so this was in the new year, about the approval that came late last year. But of course, we talked about the long uh, path that, uh, well, that preceded the approval. Uh, lots of ups, lots of downs. And uh, we'll talk with Jason about that in that January interview. But also, I'll draw back to an interview I did with him earlier in Medtronic Talks, uh, where we can sort of paint the picture uh, of some of the challenges that uh, that Medtronic's renal renovation program faced. So uh, this entire episode is going to be kind of a, a longer look at Renal Renovation. But first, I'll speak with uh, Chris Newmarker, a podcast partner. He's got a great new article up on Mass Device, and uh, we'll talk about a few other things that are related. So uh, stay tuned for that. But first, uh, I want to remind you that the registration for Device Talks Boston is open. Go to devicetalks.com to register or boston.devicetalks.com to register. That's right, boston.devicetalks.com to register. And uh, you'll still get our early bird rate, so make sure you don't miss out on that. Uh, lots of great keynotes. We announced uh, some this week. More to come, and uh, it'll be a fantastic two days, and I uh, really would love to see you there. And uh, also, Device Talks Tuesdays resumes this Tuesday. Go to devicetalks.com to check out our first episode, and uh, it'd be great to... Uh, have you be part of that and uh, looking forward to kicking off an entire year of Device Talks Tuesday's discussions. But before we begin all of that, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Acuity MD. Have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Monavukas, who is CEO of Acuity MD. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be on. We've had uh, the blessing. You've, you've blessed our, our airways before with Acuity MD's message, but there may be one or two people out there who haven't uh, heard your story yet. So could you uh, give us a quick uh, primer on, on what Acuity MD is up to? What do you folks do for med tech companies? Absolutely. And, and Tom, a lot has changed since we last spoke. Oh, uh, boy. Acuity MD is uh, the leading commercial platform for the med tech industry. We work with about 150 different medical device companies, including now five of the top 10 uh, by revenue. And so we started our journey building a platform that serves personalized opportunities to help field sales teams hit their number and grow. And our targeting module was built with a suite of differentiated features and innovations like being able to track product usage so that companies can unlock cross-sell and white space opportunities, or our peer network algorithm that can personalize that answer to the question every sales rep gets, which is, well, who else uses this product? Mm -hmm. So we can personalize that for each, each surgeon. And Tom, we talked about this one a bit, our new AI-enabled audio briefs. So helping sales reps <laughs> learn about their territory during windshield time, almost like a personalized podcast channel for every rep. What's the uh, what's the interface like for 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 sales reps when they're using Acuity MD? What kind of information are they getting on their on their hopefully future clients? Yeah, absolutely. So we've tried to meet the sales reps where they work. So a mobile app, they have the richness of our data platform uh, behind the scenes. So pulling from 330 million distinct patient journeys in the U.S., mm -hmm. the reps can access the the platform 
through mobile, but we also have an audio-based experience so that when they're on the road, they can learn about their territory, they can learn about their accounts, they can, you know, learn about individual surgeons that they're uh, that they're going to go call on. All right. Always great to hear from Mike Monavukas and Acuity MD. If you'd like more information, of course, go to acuitymd.com. We'll hear more from Mike a little later in the episode. So now is the time when I say, let's get this podcast started. All right. You ready for this? Ready. Newmarker, how are you, sir? Good to be here, Tom. Good to be here. Nice to be here on this nice April day. Wait, no, wait. It's, it's February. What's going on? It's like... I know. I was going to say, how are things in balmy Minnesota? We were just All talking right. before we pushed record. Uh, you guys are having some unseasonably warm and snow-free weather there. I know. It's like green lawn outside. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just going to see some songbirds flying around. It's like, what the heck? I'll take it. Has the fog lifted, Chris? I know you were complaining about the fog last week or the week before. I forget which. Yes, the fog is the fog has lifted. Like we are, our, our, our weather is less English now. You know, so. <laughs> even though it just makes me want to drink more coffee so that's uh, uh, yeah you'll you'll drink coffee in any weather though chris that's true coffee's yeah, good we man. have the, we we have the gray gloomies here in massachusetts and we've had them for it's at that point like you know it's bad when the sun comes out and you're like you want to call someone oh, the, the sun's out, the like, sun's out. Then you realize then you realize i haven't seen the sun in a very long time so yeah it's been just like consistently gray and gloomy for the last week and a half not a lot of precipitation but just the, the just sun comes out and you crank just, up george harrison there you know like here comes the sun da, da, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what i do yeah. you know? i just spelt it out myself yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just you just open your front door and go here comes the sun. Exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> flocks of birds fly off my my suet feeder is like <laughs> all right we're all right. being silly now yes Chris. we're being we're silly, being silly. It's a, we, right, we deserve so, it it's been you know we've we put in some some hard work this week so good happy friday man happy friday we do enjoy our each other's company yes uh so in this episode we'll be uh talking with jason weidman at medtronic that's fantastic uh, about uh yeah about about uh, their the approval of the renal renovation project and i actually have some audio i'll run from an interview i did with him a couple of years ago for medtronic talks <laughs> Uh, just sort of to set the scene, and then I'll talk with Jason uh, really about, you know, the process, the approval that they got from the FDA, which looked to be in question at a time, uh, sort of what's it like to go through that process. To, I'm always amazed at any medtecher who works 10 years on a project. I can't focus on a project for more than three days before I go bats. Uh to work for so long on something, uh, not knowing whether it's going to come to fruition or not, is is pretty admirable. So we, yeah. we talk about that whole process. You watch kids grow up the, on a project like that. My gosh. Yeah, right. I mean, like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. When you're done, it's like, Dad, yeah. give me the car keys. Like, what? Like, I can give you yeah. that. Right. The kids aren't, you're not done with that yet, Dad? It's like, No. <laughs> No, <laughs> you don't understand. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk with with Jason about that. And great, good, good couple of interviews. Uh, and that's it. No one in the booth with us today. But uh, you uh, have been busy at work on a particularly uh, large project, yeah. which I will completely say I haven't had time to look at this morning. It came out last night. But but tell us what 
tell us what folks can find on Mass Device. Well, right now, I mean, like uh, right on the uh, Mass Device homepage, um, we've got you know ten surgical robotic companies you need to know, um, and this is this is really just like a. Com- I, I mean, well, I mean, I guess we've had. There's just been a ton of news in the robotic surgery space recently. And then, you know, also like in the past year, I mean, there was really a major shakeup in it. I mean, there were a lot of, a lot of things that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we had a similar roundup to this, you know, just, uh, just two years ago, but boy, it was just time to go back, you know, really, uh, you know, the, the whole, the whole team here just kind of talked about, you know, what, what companies especially should be in that, that list of 10 and, you know, just, just do this really extensive piece you know, I basically, I basically took all all of this news that we publish, we've been publishing, and just did a really extensive, you know, piece that just like shows people the lay of the land right now in surgical robotics. You know, and and goes through like you know describing what's up with these you know ten companies, and then I mean, frankly, it was really hard to decide exactly which ten companies to put in here because there is so much going mm-hmm. on. So I mean. At the end of this thing, I'm listing a, a you know a dozen other companies too. Like, hey, you should you know keep keep an eye on these. And I'm uh, I, I am sure I will get LinkedIn messages from people from companies. Saying, like, Why <laughs> I was going to say, can you can you can you issue the disclaimer right now? No, no. this is not a comprehensive list of surgical no. robotics yes. companies. Yes, others do exist. But in our estimation, these are the ten that folks really need to know. I did. And, I did my best. I am sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, you've got the list up front. Uh, I mean, do you want me to read through them, or should people go and find? I mean, we've you know obviously intuitives at the top. Obviously, uh, a few a few newcomer strikers on there, of course. A few newcomers. Uh, well, one of them would be Noah Medical, which has gotten a lot of a lot of traction lately. Yeah. But folks can, can check out the rest at uh, at Mass device absolutely uh, again i don't want to fake it i I didn't get to read this this morning because i've been obsessing about something else but uh just scrolling through it now uh really how many words is this chris it's it's three or three thousand words holy guacamole exactly yeah pass the chips you know i mean it's wow i mean all right i mean and 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 as i said it's i mean you know it's real it's really just like I mean, like going through each of these these companies. I mean, like what what's up? What's going on with them? Um, you know, we we've had a lot of good insights from our device talks events um, as well that I could pull into these these articles. I mean, um, I mean, there's a mm-hmm. you know a great uh, I mean a great a great talk I sat in you know I, I sat in on with uh, you know a sense of surgicals uh, you know VP of R&D Dustin Vaughn at uh, Device Talks West and you know I, I took a lot from that talk and used it to kind of describe what's up with the sense of surgical which I mean has a FDA FDA cleared surgical robotic system here in the US they're one of the, the few in that soft tissue space that do you know and they're competing against intuitive mm-hmm. and so we have some really good insights there on what, what they're doing. You know, of course, intuitive. I mean, kind of the big theme I see is that, you know, and you know, we've had all these companies, big and small, saying they're gonna take on intuitive in the soft tissue surgical robotic space. But I mean but you know, intuitive is still the undisputed leader. I mean, and, you know, it, it helps when you pioneer a technology that, and they've pioneered it for a long time, you know, since the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and, and they aren't stopping. I mean, that, that was one of the 
big things that finally just made me say like I we need to get this updated roundup out because you know they were uh, you know you know uh, you know divulging how they've been working through an FDA clearance for uh, a next gen DaVinci system the DaVinci Five. Yeah, no, I mean the the one hope that most of these companies have is that Intuitive is is obviously placed thousands of systems, um, but there's a lot more that the, there's a lot of un, untapped market here. A lot of a lot of hospitals that haven't yet acquired a system. Absolutely, so there's certainly would be some some open territory for others to move into. It, it is difficult for me to envision. A hospital system that's a custom that has been intuitive for a decade and, and suddenly it's something, oh, we're just going to switch platforms. It's hard for me to kind of get my head around how that process happens. It may. It may certainly happen. Sure. But, uh, but we'll see. But, but you're right. There's so many hospitals, even in this country and around the world, that you know, you know, know, haven't brought on surgical robotics yet. So, I mean, there, there's mm-hmm. a lot of untapped space. Um, you know, another thing I, I drew on for this this roundup was, uh, you know, I, I recently interviewed uh, the CEO of CMR Surgical, a super team, uh, Bose, who's, uh, you know, who actually is going to, uh, it's going to be a, a keynote at Device Talks Boston, May 1st to 2nd. That's right. You know, in Boston, do not miss it. Um, but uh, you know, he uh, he had a great uh, you know great line with me, you know, about that where he uh, you know he said that uh, you know that you know the penetration levels for surgical robotics around the world are so low they can't remain at that. And you know he he said it's it won't happen with a single entity, not possible. You know, so that's that's really mm-hmm. their bet. And you know they've got you know these uh, smaller, more affordable, really mobile versus robots you know that they've been you know they aren't in they aren't in the u.s yet but they've been uh you know selling uh selling them uh overseas you know and like around the world uh you know and, and growing so and, you know he had a lot of good stuff about how they're you know they've been setting themselves up to have even more growth this year but i mean that that's going to be interesting you know i mean if you know like how much are they going to grow overseas um they've, mm-hmm. they've had this commercialization partnership with uh j&j's ethicon you know where can they take that next you know and uh and yeah i mean could we have uh you know they're they're british company we're we gonna have a british invasion and u.s surgical robotics <laughs> I don't know. that's your second beatles reference in a, in a podcast chris that's that's pretty good yeah so i'll i'll be uh i'll be interviewing uh super tim Bose, uh along with Chief Medical Officer and Co-Founder Mark Slack and Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder Luke Harris at Device Talks Boston on the morning of May 2nd. As the day goes on, we will uh, hear from Eric Todd, who's uh, Vice President and General Manager at Robotics and Enabling Technology at Stryker. So we're talking about Mako. That's at 1030. And then at 130 in the afternoon, uh, we have Bertina Hume, who's the Co-Founder and CEO of Quantum Surgical, which is on your list, and it's a company that's developed a, a robotic system for uh, for treating lung cancer, for, for assisting in, in that surgery, and uh, he'll be presenting Quantum Story there as well. So we'll that's have a, uh, a robust representation of, and to, if that's not enough, wait, there's more, uh, our closing joint keynote, uh, which will be joint between our event and our robotics event. Mm-hmm. Uh, will be uh, Rajit Kamal of Medtronic, who will uh, be presenting uh, Medtronic's uh, remote connectivity uh, capabilities. Uh, he'll be on the stage doing that. So lots of surgical robotics happening on day two. That's great. Device Talks Boston. So if you read our 10 surgical robotics company roundup and you're hungry for more insights, 
get that get that registration. Get over to the convention center in Boston in May. You'll you'll find out a lot. Yeah, more. we'll be talking a lot about robotics, and our robotics meetings are. We'll have about fifteen hundred people at Device Talks Boston. I'm sure uh, robotics is probably three times that, if not more. So lots of robotics discussions there. And if you can't wait until. May first and second. Got some robotic podcasts you, rolling out. So. There's more. These are web. These are more device talks Tuesdays. So, okay. uh, on uh, Tuesday, March nineteenth at noon Eastern time, we'll have Catherine Rieger, who's head of human factors and user research at Intuitive, giving a presentation. And at the same time, noon ET on March twentieth, we'll have Nikolai Beg, who's senior director of Robotic Surgical Technologies R&D at Medtronic Surgical giving presentations on their uh, on their system. So awesome. uh, if you, uh, they're free. It's just so just uh, go to Device Talks. Actually, you know what? We're not, I don't think they're open for registration yet. So that's that's something just to keep an eye out for. We'll yeah. mention that again in a future podcast. But uh, March 19th and March 20th, we'll have some surgical robotics presentations. Gosh, awesome. should I have said anything? I guess it's okay, right? It's okay. It's yeah. Don't anyone little- tell anybody, but that's, Keep an eye out on that Device Talks Tuesday site because you know there's going to be some yeah. cool stuff coming up on it. Cool stuff coming up. It's like a little little surgical robotics speakeasy. Like you know, just tell them tell them Chris sent yeah. you, and uh, and you'll get the robots it. Yeah. are sitting around drinking so, oil. Uh, like, like they probably would eat, <laughs> robots drink oil at speakeasies, right? Or like <laughs> I think they would. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, hit, hit me up with another pint of that oil. <laughs> <laughs> We'll take two quick minutes to continue my conversation with Mike Monavukas, CEO of Acuity MD. Mike, how does Acuity MD support strategic growth in initiatives within, well, let's start with larger companies, then we'll talk about how you work with smaller companies later. Absolutely. So one of the things we learned about, we started with the rep, and the more we uh, we talked to folks at medical device companies, we realized that our data platform and workflow tools could help drive broader strategic initiatives across the medical device uh, enterprise, uh, whether supporting M&A or even organic product launches. So I'll give a few examples. From an M&A perspective, we can replace a lot of the static reports and data sheets that companies traditionally use to evaluate markets and quantify market size and operationalize post-acquisition. So one of our customers, Cordis, and Cordis X, their innovation accelerator, has adopted Acuity MD to quantify the new markets that they pursue hmm. and address and assess the strategic fit with their current portfolio of products. And so what's interesting about that model compared to the status quo is we can integrate in each company's definition of their ideal customer profile and product usage from their existing portfolio of products to then overlay a new market that they want to expand to and see what the synergies might be by you know going from product A to product B. Wow. So Acuity MD is not only becoming useful when a, a, a company has decided to go into a space, but you're a big part of, of the decision whether a space is worth going into in the first place? Absolutely. Let's let's walk through this hypothetical example, Tom. So let's say you're the CEO of an orthopedic trauma company Mm -hmm. and you're thinking about a product launch or maybe an acquisition into the rotator cuff repair market. Okay, so that's that's sort of the current state. You might do some research. You might find that the overall market for this new rotator cuff product is five hundred million dollars just to make Mm -hmm. it up. Okay, but let's be honest. You don't have all the relationships with all those surgeons. You might be locked out of certain accounts. You know, it's going to be difficult to convert all $500 million of that market over to your new product. 
Um, and so based on what we can do with the QDMD is not only show you how big the market is, but we can say, hey, Tom, based on the surgeons who already use your trauma portfolio and the accounts who are already purchasing trauma, uh, your trauma bag. Well, mm -hmm. we identified twenty million dollars of low-hanging fruit where you can cross-sell your rotator cuff product into your existing base of users and customers, and within a few clicks, you could operationalize that strategy out to your sales reps and start tracking and reporting on the outcomes in real time to make sure that hey, our initiative is is working, or maybe it's not, and we need to consider a new segment to expand to. All right, I'll return with Mike Montevuca, CEO of AcuityMD, a little later in the podcast. Finally, the, the news of the week that uh, I've been obsessed with this week is just fractal, uh, fractal. Oh my helps, gosh, yeah. Uh, filing for an IPO. IPO, yeah, man. And it was, uh, uh, this comes just mere weeks after uh, I wrote on LinkedIn, don't even think about an IPO, MedTech, and uh, here we go, Fractal Health. But they do have, as we were talking prior to pushing record, Number one, I'm, I'm upset at myself for not reaching out to CEO Haris Rajagopalian for talking about Ozempic and, and GLP-1s and all that because Fractal Health in, is the perfect company to sort of have a, a really comprehensive point of view on on the impact of those drugs on medtech, and I'm kicking myself. But uh, Chris, I know you're going to write about this by the time people hear it. I'm sure it'll be up on Mass Device. Uh, yeah. But they just got uh, some interesting approaches. I mean, they're they're... I initially, when I started on LinkedIn, I was watching TV, <laughs> so I just shared it. I'm like, "Oh, renal innovation bump," because they have kind of a denervation technology. Right. It's not in the re it's not in the kidney; it's in the intestines, and it's supposed to help folks with type two diabetes uh, control their disease. Um, but they right. also have a gene therapy drug that yeah. uh, could be another version of GLP one. So uh, they've got a very robust pipeline, and they're they're going to fund a trial. That would help folks who have gone, who have used GLP what drugs to lose weight, who want to get off the drugs but want to keep the weight off. They're going to apparently, according to the S one, they've got the Remain One trial, which would uh, study that. So, yeah, as I said, that's exciting. They're in the middle of it, and we should have talked to them before they filed to go public. And I'm I'm going to be angry at myself for at least a few more hours, and then I'll get over it and I'll have a beer. When it's the end there of the you day. go. But, uh, but uh, don't, yeah. don't drink any oil. But uh, but yeah. Oh God. Tom, <laughs> <laughs> let's have, have a, a beer. dad joke setting. We can shut up. <laughs> dad joke setting. <laughs> Tom, I'm a dad. What am I going to do? I know. I am too, but you know, read the room, my, my kids friend. Are, my kids are a lot younger, so I was more. They'd be on the floor, no doubt, no doubt. They'd be like, oh, dad, stop it! You're killing me. <laughs> my, yeah. Is it a bad sign when even my kids are like, dad, just? Oh. <laughs> anyway, yeah. all right. Well, that's where yeah. we are today. We'll 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 uh, we'll go on. Uh, we'll. The, Coming up in the episode, we'll have Jason Weidman yeah. uh, from Medtronic talking about uh, renal innovation. And uh, check out Chris's great story on Mass Device. It's really fantastic. And uh, if you're angry or upset with him about it, please make sure you reach out on LinkedIn. Um, if you're angry or upset, <laughs> let him know. You know, let Tom know. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> that's the beauty of articles like these: is you're gonna you're gonna upset nearly everyone. So I, there'll be no shorter no shortage of feedback. I already had somebody be like, "Why aren't we on the top 10? And I and and, and, and I was like, "But I I had you in the also's, you know. I mean, it, you know. It, and I, I admittedly, I looked at what they did. I was like, "This is really cool. You know, it's really cool. It's, it's, it's hard to it's hard to you know to 
you know, there's so much going on. It's hard to just like nail it down to 10, but you got to have some kind of number, right? I mean, absolutely. We have an, an abundance of riches here in MedTech. Yeah. Lots of, lots of cool companies going Very on. Very fortunate. So. It's good. All right. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Always fun. All right. So now we'll hear from uh, Jason Weidman of Medtronic. Again, he is senior vice president and president of the coronary and renal renovation business at Medtronic. Uh, I'll draw from a, a podcast I did earlier with, with Jason first. But before we do that, I want to bring in our sponsor, QDMD. Once again, I'm talking with Mike Monavukas. He is CEO of QDMD. Mike, earlier in the podcast, we talked about how you're able to help larger medtech corporations. Well, how about on the startup side? I mean, you're talking about companies that, you know, maybe they have a device that doesn't quite, it's innovative by nature. They're startups. They're coming up with new devices, new approaches. How are you able to work with companies that are bringing new products to market that may not fit a previous mold? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Really strong use case around high growth companies looking to establish their commercial traction. And I think one of the big challenges, you know, with an innovative medical technologies is distribution. You go Mm -hmm. talk to, you know, you go talk to startups, they're all looking for distribution. Not only that, you know, how do we make sure that our limited sales resources stay focused and efficient um, as they launch a product? Uh, and so, you know, one example I point to is Embody. Uh, the commercial team in Embody adopted Acuity MD on the eve of the launch of their product tapestry. Hmm. And, you know, so we were ingrained into their initial launch plans from territory design and in initial target lists as they rolled out uh, their commercial team, um, you know, back when they first launched. And Acuity MD helped their reps, uh, helped reps, some of which were brand new to the product. And in some cases, even the call point. Uh, ramp up to eight weeks faster and, and achieve their quota in that first year of, of the commercial launch. And well, the rest is history uh, for Embody. And Mike alluded to the rest is history uh, for Embody. Embody was acquired by Zimmer Biomet last year. So we'll hear a little more from Mike Monavukas a little bit later in the podcast. If you want to find out more about AcuityMD, you can go to acuitymd.com. That's A-C-U-I-T-Y-M-D.com. All right, let's uh, let's get to our main topic of discussion, which is Medtronic's renal renovation program. We're going to hear a lot from Jason Weidman. He is senior vice president and uh, president of coronary and renal renovation at Medtronic. Uh, I interviewed Jason uh, early last month in January, and we'll talk sort of uh, about where we are today, uh, about where Medtronic is, uh, where renal renovation is, uh, and, and sort of the whole process and um, I was going to say ordeal. Ordeal might be a little harsh, but it's been a long road for renal renovation and uh, I want to give a little bit of sense of that. So uh, to start with, I'd like to steer you toward a podcast I did prior to Device Talks called MedTech Talk. And in 2019, I released two episodes in which I talked with Howard Levin and Mark Gelfand who were the, uh, the two creators of the current renal renovation uh, technology that's, that, uh, that Medtronic's program is built around. They, they did the research into the surgery that used to be done to, uh, to basically sever nerves in the kidney as a means of controlling hypertension. They converted that ear into something less invasive. Uh, then it was uh, handed off to the foundry, the incubator, then Ardine was created, and ultimately Ardine would be acquired by Medtronic 
in 2011 for $800 million, which um, is a lot of money now. It was an exceptional amount of money then. Uh, and uh, it really seemed like the uh, the positive conclusion to a great medtech story. So before we get into this story anymore, I'm going to uh, pull this from an interview I did with Jason Weidman in 2021. I just let's take a moment and just talk about what renal renovation is, what it does. Let's listen. Yeah. So um, look at at, at, its, at the very core of how blood pressure works. Kidneys are are, are part of the, the body's blood pressure control mechanism. So communication to and, and from the brain on on how to regulate the kidney's activity. It happens via the nerves, obviously. And as those nerves near the kidney, they travel in the walls of the renal artery or or the artery that that leads to the kidney. So patients with high blood pressure, they often have overactivity in these nerves. So if we can interrupt that overactivity, kind of get rid of the noise, we can bring down blood pressure. So Renal innervation is a, is a minimally invasive outpatient procedure. And in a lot of respects, it's, it's quite similar for the patient to like a coronary stent procedure, except there's no permanent implant. And so through femoral access or, or a tiny incision in your leg, a, a small device is inserted uh, up through the arteries and then to that renal artery that leads to the kidney. And then our Medtronic Simplicity Spiral device delivers energy, and we use radio frequency or RF energy, so we deliver energy to the wall of the artery to impact those nerves and try to calm that overactivity that I spoke about earlier. And so this can in, is simply help to uh, lower blood pressure. Okay, so we have a sense of how it works. So as I said, Medtronic bought Ardian in 2011. In 2014, uh, then-CEO Omar Schrock uh, announced at J.P. Morgan uh, that the company's uh, or Medtronic's hypertension three clinical trials for renal renovation did not go well. They were disappointing. Uh, it didn't fare as well against a placebo uh, of, um, at the time. So it, the trial was not demonstrating the efficacy of the uh, technology. And uh, it was a, a punch in the gut. Uh, I, I remember sitting near uh, some of the uh, the Foundry and Ardian folks when, uh, when uh, Omar Shrock was taking questions in a breakout room. And uh, they were clearly upset, and uh, it really seemed as if it uh, dented the the medtech industry at the time. And as I mentioned in the previous interview I did with Jason, and I think I did in this one as well, uh, everyone had a renal renovation program. Uh, big companies had them, most of them. Uh, most of the venture firms had a company in their portfolio uh, that was uh, that had a similar approach or was trying to do something similar. And uh, the wind went out of the sails uh, in January 2014 when this trial was announced. And uh, those others uh, simply closed programs, closed companies, and moved on to something else. But Medtronic did not. So here, I'm getting going to pull from the interview I did with Jason in 2021, uh, where I just asked him, what were, uh, what were the steps that were taken after that fateful January 2014th announcement of the disappointing hypertension three trials. Let's listen. Are you able to sort of talk us through what happened after? Uh, on, on Jan- yeah, sure. Yep. So I, I think the first is um, what happened or, or maybe what did we, we learn from hypertension three? And so uh, for those who weren't familiar, there were, there were two earlier studies, larger studies, hypertension one and hypertension two 
that were single arm studies that were very, very positive, showing a blood pressure lowering effect of, of Ardian. Um, hypertension 3 was the large randomized sham controlled study in the US. And so, um, and that what, what happened was we missed the efficacy endpoint. What we saw was even though the device um, seemed to have an effect, we also saw an effect from the control arm. So there wasn't a, a difference or a, or a statistically significant difference. And so at that highest level, I would say what we learned is that variability is absolutely the enemy of running a successful clinical trial. So, you know, blood pressure trials in particular are super hard to run because there are so many outside variables that affect blood pressure and they're hard to control. And so in short, what we found in hypertension three was that we had too much variability to measure a clean signal from the device. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? That does make sense. No, and it's something I've heard from, from uh, well, other, another company in the space as well, just uh, managing the amount of meds being taken, the lifestyle, the adherence to the other meds being taken, and trying to figure out what impact your device is having on the patient uh, is difficult to quantify. So it, it certainly doesn't match yeah. up. So did it, was it immediately known to you that this is an issue with execution on a trial? Let's fix that problem. And then we'll, we'll find out what this technology can do. No, it wasn't, it wasn't certainly immediately known. And, and we really analyzed everything about the procedure, about the patient population, about the device, uh, and really tried to figure out what went wrong. And I would say, if you break it down, I would say from a procedure perspective, uh, number one, we were likely ablating in a suboptimal place, which would create uh, an inconsistent response. Uh, number two, our, our first generation device, which was called the flex catheter, it was a single point catheter. Mm -hmm. um, at at the, the way it was used, it enabled significant variability in, in how the physicians uh, placed it and, and thus um, the type of response you got. And so the, the post-analysis data suggested we had uh, incomplete ablation in a huge percent of our patients. Uh, and as you mentioned, and probably most importantly, uh, we just didn't have good control or even visibility to patient medication changes, which obviously can completely confound your results. So we knew if we were going to go forward with this program, we were going to need to address all of those things. And so um, as we have moved the program forward, um, you know, these are all things that we've addressed to the best of our ability. You know, we changed the, the ablation location. We moved to this new spiral device, which takes out uh, uh, variability and is much easier to use. Um, and we take a lot more care in terms of patient blood pressure medications. Uh, we actually watch patients take their pills before important blood pressure measurements in the trial. Um, we trace what drugs are in their system via urinalysis and blood samples, uh, et cetera. So, even if things go uh, in a direction they weren't, aren't supposed to go with a patient, they're doing something they're not supposed to do, we can control from that for that now because we know exactly what they're doing. All right, well, I think that's enough scene setting. Let's get into the interview I did with Jason Weidman uh, last month where uh, we talked about the approval that came through uh, in the fall and uh, where Medtronic is going forward and, and also just overall how a uh, how a medical device company how do people how do medical device folks endure this long 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 path to approval because um, there had to be moments when uh, when doubt was high 
and uh, people just uh, just bore down and, and kept at it. And I think that's admirable, and it's uh, something I wanted to explore. So I, I, I'm appreciative that uh, I appreciate Jason indulging me in that line of questioning. And uh, all right, we'll uh, we'll get the conversation started with Jason Weidman uh, just as soon as we hear from our sponsor, Acuity MD, one final time. Uh, once again, I had the chance to speak with Mike Monavukis of Acuity MD. All right, I'm here once again with Mike Monavukis, CEO of Acuity MD. Mike, keep talking about startups. When do startups come to Acuity MD looking for help? Uh, when should they be reaching out? When is it most effective? Yeah, I think there are two discrete junctures where startups and high growth med tech companies uh, you know, pursue a QDMD. The first is when they're evaluating a new market. Now, this could be to, in preparation for an investor pitch and they want to identify what's the market size, how is it segmented, what is achievable based on what we know about the market so that they can go and pitch that to investors or strategics. That's one juncture point where, you know, folks come to a QDMD for that insight initially. The second is as they're starting to plan commercially of where do we want to place territories? How big are these territories? How many reps can we justify uh, for phase one, phase two, phase three launch? Uh, that's another uh, key use case to adopt a QDMD to help with that territory level planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are kind of the two juncture points, market sizing and then you know commercial launch. Final question. Let's talk about uh, QDMD's high growth. You know, we, I think I started talking to you I want to say two or three years ago when you were just starting the company and you're you're firing in all cylinders now. What's uh, what's the future look like for QDMD? Yeah, we're going to continue to execute on our on our mission, which is to accelerate adoption of medical technology. You know, I mentioned we're at about 150 medical device companies now, including five of the of the top ten. We've got a suite of uh, product innovations that we're excited for, and in, in, as we head into 2024, that'll expand our reach beyond you know the med device rep into marketing, into national accounts, into sales leadership, into sales ops. So really focused on broadening our platform and some of the use cases we can support to a much wider audience uh, at the med med device uh, you know at the med device company, and you know looking forward to our second. Uh, customer conference, uh, the flywheel event in in Minneapolis, which will be in September of 2024 as well. All right. Thanks, Mike Monavukas and AQDMD for sponsoring this episode of Device Talks Weekly. Once again, if you'd like more information about AQDMD, go to AQDMD.com. That's A-C-U-I-T-Y-M-D.com. Well, Jason Weidman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Good to see you again. Yeah, no, we, we connected on our uh, Medtronic Talks podcast a couple of years ago, and I'm going to link to that podcast because there's a lot of great information in there about your background, how you came into medtech, and about the earlier days of, of renal renovation and the whole Ardian story in 2014, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot there. We'll cover some high-level stuff there, but I do suggest that people go out and listen to that podcast as well. There's a lot of information there. I want to revisit your background for a moment, though, because I, I was listening to that podcast and reminded what drew you into medtech. And you had said, stated that you were interested in joining the medtech industry early on in life because of an experience with a friend of yours. Can you illuminate a bit on that? Because I, I kind of want to draw back to that later on as we talk about this whole long rental renovation process. Yeah, sure. So I think we talked about it last time, but I grew up in Michigan yeah. in kind of the heart of the auto industry. If you show an aptitude for math and science, people kind of shift you towards engineering. So I kind of got onto that path. And when I was in high school, 
I had a really close friend, unfortunately, who was terminally ill. And so I spent some time with him when he went for his treatments at the hospital, et cetera, and just really got to see that healthcare had a lot of room for improvements. And so at that point, I really thought that if I'm going to go into engineering, I want to apply it to healthcare and really had my heart set on the medical device industry from a very early stage. So I think I'm one of those odd people that's actually working in the field that they kind of envisioned when they were 16 years old. And I think that that was a great story in a tragic story, but a great story in sort of illustrating that the spirit that goes into being part of the medical device industry. And I'm drawing that because the story of rental renovation about you're getting the, the approval just last year, one of the latest chapters, I was going to say final chapters of a story that goes on for almost 20 years. And Medtronic has been part of it for over 10 years. Just as a medtech person working on projects for that long, where there's sort of a binary response at the end, yes or no approval from the FDA, how do you keep focused and keep moving forward for such a long period of time? You know, because it seems like if you get a no vote, that those are years of your life, a decade of your life that you could look at it being lost or, or not misspent, but just didn't really produce what you wanted it to. How do you keep drawing sort of the inspiration to keep working in a sector where progress comes so slowly and success isn't guaranteed? Yeah, thanks for the question. And, and you know, I've had a lot of time to reflect on kind of this journey, a lot more time in the last couple of months since the approval. And yeah. you know, one of the things I thought about is exactly what you just said from the from the initial stages of when I got involved in renal innovation at Medtronic. And, you know, I, I kind of went into other parts of Medtronic and back at different points. So it wasn't a constant line, but it's been almost half my career. And so it has been that really long journey. But to get to your question of how do you stay focused, I think it comes back to a couple of things. One is, you know, if you're in this field to make a difference, you know, you start with that that clinical need and that unmet need. And really, in, in the case of renal innovation, there is no bigger unmet need out there than hypertension. A billion people worldwide, the largest contributor to death, less than 20% of people are at target blood pressure. So there's this huge need. And then when you combine that with core scientific fundamentals that are really sound, we just really believed in it. And so it's it's easier to kind of be on that path when you've got that need and you've got the strong science behind it. And I think the third thing that I would mention that makes it easier is really to have a great team. And I think what you would be shocked to see with a lot of the people that helped get this over the finish line at Medtronic, a lot of them have been working on this for 10 years. And, you know, that's not something typical that you see in today's day and age in any industry to see a team stick together that long. And I would say this is the best team I've ever worked with, and they're phenomenal, and they really inspire me every day. What are the qualities of a good team? I mean, I think obviously capabilities is part of it, but what really makes a group really sing together and really be able to, to cling together during, during these long processes? First thing I would say is trust. Trust, yeah. transparency, it all comes down to trust actually, I would say, and, you know, there's a lot to be done, a lot of blips along the way. It's never a straight line. But if you trust your teammates and you can be transparent and tell them how you're really feeling, it's just that much easier to get through things. Well, when we last spoke, I think it was 2022 or so. We were still a year or so away from you were hoping to get the word from the FDA for rental innovation. And we'll delve into that in a moment. But let's back up and talk a bit about rental innovation, its origins a bit, but what it really offers for folks in, in hypertension and how it's a different way to help folks keep their pressure under control. Great. So I already talked about kind of the unmet need a little bit. Yeah. There's this huge problem. But I guess other things to really emphasize, just starting at that point too, though, is 
a small reduction in blood pressure really provides a great benefit to patients. So if you think about when you go into the doctor and you get your, your blood pressure measured, that top number is, is your systolic blood pressure. So just reducing that number by two to five millimeters of mercury, so it just goes down two to five points, will um, reduce your chances of having a negative cardiovascular event by about 10%. So there's a really substantial benefit to, to lowering blood pressure. So that, that need is really there. We also know that things like drugs and lifestyle changes can make a difference, but people just don't take their medications enough. And so there are other solutions really needed and patients desperately want new solutions. So that's kind of the, the beginning, like we talked about earlier, of here's our North Star. How do we come up with an alternative for patients with high blood pressure where conventional means aren't working? Then let's talk about how it works. So the kidneys really are the central part here. So they help moderate blood pressure. They're your body's blood pressure control mechanism. And so then communication to and from the brain on how to regulate the kidney's activity happens via nerves, which I guess is obvious. And those nerves that are near the kidney or travel to the kidney, they travel along the walls of that kidney artery or the renal artery. So patients with high blood pressure often have overactivity of these nervous signals that are traveling between the brain and the kidney. So if we can interrupt this overactivity, we can bring down blood pressure. And to talk about the really long journey, if you go way back, in fact, as early as the 1930s, surgeons were trying to do surgical renal sympathectomies to do this, to actually interrupt this signal between the brain and the kidney. And it certainly worked to lower blood pressure, but it was obviously really, really invasive to go in and surgically do that cutting. So Ardian is a, was a much simpler, minimally invasive kind of outpatient procedure approach to do that same sort of concept. There's no permanent implant. So through a tiny incision in your leg, we insert a catheter. We kind of make that travel up to the artery, that renal artery that leads to the kidney. And so then our device, the Medtronic spiral device, then delivers energy. And we use RF energy to the wall of that artery. And that then impacts that nerve activity. So it kind of calms that overactivity that I mentioned. And this helps to lower blood pressure. It's interesting you bring back it to this. That surgery was what inspired the creators of the Ardian technology. I mean, they literally were drawing on the, the data from that surgery saying, let's just find a better way of doing this. Mechanically, it sounds quote unquote simple. What were the challenges in getting the Ardian device approved? And to, to again, draw from the the podcast we did previously. You were at Medtronic. You were part, though, of the group that did the due diligence of Ardian, which Medtronic acquired, I think, in 2011 or so. So you were scoping out the renal renovation field for Medtronic. At the time, there were a lot of different programs going on because people saw it as a real promising approach. But what, what are the challenges of, what were the challenges in getting this product approved and through clinical trials? Because again, when you explain it, it sounds like, well, yeah, that's, that sounds like a simple approach. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question, Tom. So I think that, you know, like any new therapy, there's going to be the, the challenges and the iterations and the solutions that come about on just improving the device or the widget. And so we, we went through that kind of normal process and, and found ways to improve the device over the past decade. But I think really the primary learnings here and the, and the biggest roadblocks we had to overcome related more to the procedure and the clinical trial to measure the effects of the procedure. And again, as you mentioned, we talked about this last time, but blood pressure trials are very, very, very complex. You're trying to measure the effect of your treatment 
in the midst of an environment where there are many other variables that are ongoing that can that impact your endpoint, your blood pressure. So if patients are on medications or if they make lifestyle changes, all of those things can impact their blood pressure. And so it can really make it confusing to isolate a signal. So that's that was really the biggest learnings and, and the biggest challenges that we had to overcome over the past, frankly, 10 plus years. How did the complexity of these trials compare to, uh, to other trials that you've either been familiar with or that you've witnessed or you just know about? I imagine this is amongst the most complex. Yes. Um, so for context of my experience, you know, I've spent basically my entire medical device career in cardiovascular devices, which tend to be very data intensive. So I've always spent time in medical device markets or fields or segments that have a lot of clinical studies and complex clinical studies. And I can say without a doubt that these studies are the most complex I have ever been involved in. I find that intellectually interesting and it's been challenging, but it's also been really gratifying at the same time. So let's talk about the advisory panel vote in August of 2023 last year, where they both reviewed yours and and another system. There were two votes. The committee voted that unanimously that Medtronic's simplicity spiral system was safe, but the committee was split at seven to six on the effectiveness of the simplicity blood pressure procedure. So they're saying it's safe, but they were not convinced that it necessarily had the efficacy that they'd hoped. Can you walk us through those committee meetings, what was the the process like a bit? And then I kind of want to understand what the next day felt like for you. But what was that day like in terms of making presentations and and going through it? Yeah, sure. So with any panel meeting, we prepare for a long time and it's months in advance. And I think the challenge is, you know, each company sponsor has a, a relatively short amount of time to put their information forward. And um, when you've been involved with the therapy for as long as we have, one of the advantages for us is the tremendous amount of clinical data that we have. Over five clinical trials, all of these years, 4,000 patients, nearly 2,000 patients out to two years. So that's a great advantage for us. (laughs) In some ways, it's a disadvantage in in a panel because there's so much to get through in in a short period of time. So then I think the next thing to really understand, though, is really how FDA panels work. And so I, I think the way I like to think about them and describe them is they're almost like a, an advisory board for the FDA. So they're not people that are, you know, work for the work for the FDA over, you know, on a daily basis. They're not people that have been involved in renal denervation with FDA up to that point. It's just this panel of experts across a different different fields of clinical expertise or academic expertise. And the FDA comes to them with some very specific questions to get their point of view and their advice. So it's not a vote on approval, it's not binding, but it's how do they you know, provide another angle of input to the FDA. So I think what you talked about was the summary vote at the end, but actually the first part of that is, I think there were like somewhere between 15 and 20 questions that we, the FDA posed to that panel that we really spent a lot of time going through at the panel. At the end, they then summarize the same way in every panel for all devices with three questions. Is it safe? Is it efficacious? And then, you know, I I think primarily in case you get a split vote on those two, they ask, what about the net benefit? And so there were actually, again, three votes at the end. So we were unanimously safe. We did get a positive vote on efficacy too. And so I thought, oh, this this is done, we're in the bag because that net benefit question is only for really when you get a split vote. And then somehow we got a tie vote on the net benefit, which which was a little confusing. And then in the tie vote, 
then the chairman then breaks the tie. And that's the seven, six kind of against us that, that you, you spoke of. That's how we ended up where we were. I mean, obviously at that moment, it wasn't a great feeling. <laughs> you know, we've, we've spent a really long time. We've been working on this for, uh, you know, we all really believe in this therapy and it helps. It, I really honestly believe this is a, such a tremendous opportunity to help patients. And I think that it was disappointing to see how it goes, how it went. And as I said, it's a, you know, it's a one short single day on an FDA panel and you, you don't feel like you can always get everything across. And I think I kind of felt like in some ways we, we missed an opportunity. So that was, that was kind of the initial thought. But at the same time, you know, that was immediately followed by remained optimism and confidence because we, like I said, we have great data. And the FDA, yeah. we've been working with them for years on this. They understand our, the, the whole program. They understand the complexity of it. And we were pretty confident that we could continue to, to go on the path that we needed to go on and ultimately drive towards approval. When you say it helps patients, you're, you're, you're pointing at the data, but I imagine having been involved in so many of these trials, do you get to know some of the patients as well? Do you get to kind of hear personal stories? Do you, do you carry those with you also? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I've met many of our patients. Uh, and in fact, just I, I don't know if you've ever heard that every year at, in December, Medtronic has a, a holiday program where we bring patients into corporate headquarters and they tell their stories. And, and this year, we actually one of those five patients was a simplicity patient. It's an incredible story. It really kind of reinforces why we've been on this journey for a long time and makes me incredibly proud of what the team has done. I believe it. Did you have any steps to take after that vote? Did you have to have an opportunity to react in some way to influence the FDA's final decision? Or are you, are you just sort of in a, a holding pattern and a, and, and a waiting period? Well, I think the, the way these approval processes work, it's not simply that you kind of like submit a, a giant package of thousands and thousands of documents and then you wait, you know, six to 12 months and then there's a binary answer. You know, it's a continual back and forth between the agency and the sponsor, you know, throughout that whole journey. And so I would say it was a continuation of that journey. There was more information that FDA wanted to see from us and additional questions that they had as a result of the input that they got during the panel. And we provided that information and we continued to go back and forth. And, and like I said, we ultimately got to the approval we always expected to get to. It wasn't necessarily any different over those last few months after the panel than what I ever expected it. I think outside though, and myself included, I, I wasn't anticipating necessarily a, a positive result. And even the final positive word, I think it came out late Friday night, which was unusual timing. And, and it kind of added to the like one final stroke of drama for this story. It was a great, a great ending, but it was a surprise. So did you, well, well, folks on the outside who were not part of the story, maybe had their doubts. Were you internally, were you folks feeling, you were feeling confident? Yeah, we were feeling pretty good. I think that people forget that like there are a lot of really successful treatments out there that didn't have a straight path on the way to get to their approval. And, you know, if we look at other cardiovascular devices, you know, I can look at something like Boston Scientific's Watchman device, which, you know, everyone will point to as an extremely successful product line for Boston. And it's been great for patients. And if you look at their journey, it was not unlike what we had with, uh, with renal denervation. I think they went to panel several times. That's they right. Had some mixed panel decisions. And, you know, everyone, everyone forgets about that a few years later. That's great. No, that's a great point. So let's talk about now where we're at, your commercial. What apparatus did you have in place ready to go? And how has that changed over the, the few months that you're, you're actively a commercial enterprise now? Yeah. So, you know, since we got approval, we were 
obviously excited and ready to go. And <laughs> we started commercialization immediately. Um, we've been planning for this for a long time. Initial patients were done with the Simplicity device within a couple of weeks. In terms of the apparatus that we use, our field force that we're using in the United States, for the most part, is an established channel. So it's our, our coronary business. We are using that established um, sales channel. And so these salespeople, they know most of the treating physicians. They've been trained up over the years on hypertension and the Simplicity Spiral device. And so they're definitely ready, uh, ready to go and excited. And then in addition to that, over the, the past six to 12 months, we've also hired an additional field therapy development team to really help the hospitals and, and the physicians with the appropriate creation of hypertension programs that they're going to need to build in these centers. And so again, if you look at other new to world cardiovascular therapies, like when Taver came out or when Watchman came out, this kind of model of having an additional market development or field therapy development team to help the, the physicians get their, these new programs in, in place is, is, is common. And we're kind of following that, that blueprint. Is there anything that's required at these healthcare facilities other than the equipment they're purchasing from you in terms of rooms or beds or things like that? I imagine you're just a typical procedure. Yeah, from a procedure perspective, it's it's done in a cath lab. And so any cath lab that's outfitted for a coronary or peripheral procedure, can this procedure can be done in it. It's kind of very similar to those. We obviously require training. We have a very extensive training program that we help with and we proctor initial cases, et cetera. But it, it's pretty straightforward. Does work feel different now that you're you're out and you're you're selling? I mean, the challenges are remain. You have challenges in terms of commercializing, uh, but they're different challenges. But there's at least there's a a certainty and a familiarity, and I guess a matter of control because you're the ones who can do the selling. You're not waiting for an entity to give you a green light or or, or a red light. Does life feel different in real innovation program at Medtronic? Yeah, now? yeah. I mean, yes, yes, and no. Like, I mean, first I'll say with the no that that you know there's always something more to be done, and there's and. <laughs> and, and, and we've always really believed in this. And so this was the expectation that we, or the, the outcome we expected to get to. So that part of it, it hasn't changed. But, but obviously a lot also has changed, you know, because now, now we have the validation of the approval and we go into this next phase that we've been planning to get to in this commercialization phase for a long time. And it, it certainly feels fantastic. It, it, there's, there's a level of stress that has been removed. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know if I've noticed it as much as, as my family has. They told me over the break, <laughs> you, just, you just seem a lot more relaxed than you did. <laughs> That's great. And how do the how do the the previous decade or so that you've been involved, looking back now that you've had that again, the certainty and the doubt removed, do you look at those days differently? I don't know if I look at them differently. You know, I like I said, I've really enjoyed the, the journey. I've learned a lot. Yeah. Um, we've learned a lot. I don't look at it too that it's taken us this long. I don't look at it as like a lost, you know, decade of years where we could have had it on the market. We've learned a ton during that period of time. Our device is much better than that original device. We do the procedure better. We know how to do that better. We know how to choose patients better. All of that is is better. And I think that our ability to make an impact with patients' lives, I think that that, that acceleration uh, is going to be much quicker at this point in time when we launched than it would have been if we would have even passed that original trial in hypertension three ten years ago. Great. And final question: Is there a next chapter to this technology? Do you have other applications that you're pursuing? What What's next for this use of this energy in this way? Yeah, a absolutely. I mean, um, this is still an early generation device for this type of treatment. So right now we have 
five active R&D pipeline programs that are ongoing to take this therapy forward. You know, I'll speak to one that's, you know, not too far out, which is moving the procedure to radial access. So I mentioned that the procedure is done through a small incision in the leg. It's more comfortable for patients and for physicians to do it through the wrist. Allows people, recovery times are generally quicker. And so people can come in and out of hospital in a number of hours. So that'll be the first iteration that the world sees. But then we have much more what I'll call significant new developments in in the pipeline as well. And some uh, maybe transformational approaches that I hope could could maybe even um, take the efficacy of this device even further than it is today. That's great. All right. Well, it says uh, I declared earlier in the first podcast, I was a huge uh, Ardian fanboy, a huge renal organization fanboy. So it's been interesting to watch this story unfold and fantastic to see the resulting outcome. And, and congratulations to you for the time spent for to your team for their hard work. And I uh, look forward to following the story on future podcasts. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Once again, thanks to Acuity MD for sponsoring this episode. Folks, you could do us a few favors. We'd really, really appreciate it. Number one, uh, please do share this podcast on social media. When you do, please tag me. I am Tom Salemi at Device Talks. You can also connect and tag Chris Newmarker. Chris, as in a Newmarker, Newmarker, he is uh, the executive editor of Mass Device. Also, please tag Device Talks and Mass Device and follow us all, connect with us all. We love, 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 love being part of your med tech conversations. Please do subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you don't miss a future episode of this podcast or our uh, corporate-oriented podcasts, including new ones that are coming out, uh, one called Edwards Life Sciences Talk. So we'll be uh, rolling that one out a little later this year. That's in addition to Stryker Talks and Boston Scientific Talks and Abbott Talks and uh, Intuitive Talks and everything else we've been working on in the MedTech podcast space. So uh, don't miss one. And uh, just again, subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network on any of your podcast players. You can also uh, connect with us or follow us on YouTube. Uh, that's, we're posting some more videos up there. Would love to have you on there tracking as well. You can find our new podcast, including Med Tech Women Talks and AI Meets Life Sci. That's all on there on YouTube. So, so much content coming your way. And uh, I really do hope you are enjoying it. Uh, also, while we're talking about connecting, make sure you connect with Kayleen Brown. She is the managing editor of Device Talks and host of MedTech Women Talks and co-host of AI Meets Life Sci. So uh, please do all of that. Finally, uh, go to boston.devicetalks.com. Check out our growing agenda and speaker list for Device Talks Boston, which is happening on May 1st and 2nd at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. We're uh, ahead of last year's pace, and last year was a great year. So it's going to be another fantastic event. The only thing that would make it better for me and for you is if you are there. So please don't miss the opportunity to take advantage of our early bird rate. Go to boston.devicetalks.com to register. Finally, our uh, first Device Talks Tuesdays of the year kicks off on Tuesday at 4 p.m. Go to devicetalks.com to register for that and many of our upcoming episodes of Device Talks Tuesdays, which is our super, super cool online discussion uh, series. 
And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with our uh, esteemed guests there and hearing or reading your questions as well. All right. Thanks again, folks, for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We'll have another one for you uh, next week. Take care, everybody. Thank you.